Good morning, welcome back to another pre-market open live stream. Today, we are just five days away from the expiring coupon code. Link down below, no sponsors on this channel except myself. So check out those programs on building your wealth and maximizing your knowledge, whether it's fundamentals and real estate, stocks, or making more money in our Elite Hustlers group, which is getting new and exclusive weekend live streams. Stay tuned for more updates on that. Uh, I'd love to have you, I'd love to have you as part of the group. All right, today we've got a lot going on. We'll be talking about Microsoft and what the heck happened on that earnings call. We'll actually go through that earnings call together. We'll go through some of the other wildness that's going on in the stock market as well. Keep in mind, today's probably biggest catalyst uh, for <laughs> earnings and for maybe many of our portfolios is Tesla. Uh, Tesla reports earnings after the bell. Uh, obviously, uh, I expect to be covering that in detail, and I'm sure there will be many videos made about Tesla after the bell today. Uh, do feel free to come back uh, here at around 1 p.m. Uh, California time for that uh, Tesla live stream, and uh, we'll cover uh, any of the other earnings going on as well. But of course, the focus will be on that slide deck released by Tesla. A lot of expectations for margin. Uh, Tesla's uh, earnings expectations have been written down substantially. Uh, I, I do think that a lot of the retail community uh, is expecting a substantially worse report than, than I personally think we're going to get. Uh, I'm potentially a little bit more optimistic about this report, mostly because if you think about it, most of the price cuts for vehicles for Tesla's actually occurred. Uh, well, we started with uh, incentives in December and most of the price cuts with the exception of China uh, occurred in here Q1 in January. Uh, so I actually don't think the margin impact for Teslas will be that terrible, and hopefully we'll see some more commodity uh, cost um, reductions for Q1 production, uh, although I'm sure we'll get some guidance and commentary on that, so we'll, we'll certainly be paying attention to that. That'll be a big deal. But again, personally, I'm not that negative uh, as, as I believe the market is, is pricing in for Tesla. But uh, then again, a lot of work could come down to forecasts, so we'll see. All right, we have five-year break-evens today. Let's take a look at our good old break-even inflation rate. Five-year break-evens uh, sitting up again a little bit, 2.32. Really waiting for a plummet in that number before uh, I think we'll ever expect to see any kind of Fed U-turn. Seeing pre-market turn a little bit red here. We've got, uh, oh, it's actually quite a bit more red than it was earlier. Uh, we've got uh, Dow Futures down roughly half a percent, 0.57, S&P 8.1, NASDAQ 1.31. Amazon's drug subscription service, uh, Rx Pass, costs five bucks a month with Amazon Prime. And uh, apparently this uh, enables you uh, essentially discounted uh, generic drugs and uh, it's, it's been deemed sort of a non-profit venture. However, uh, Mark Cuban's Cost Plus Drug uh, drugs is still deemed to be two to three times cheaper than Amazon's drug uh, deliver, delivery service. Walmart, by the way, we were going through the Walmart earnings uh, for yesterday. Uh, we'll actually talk a little bit about Walmart and wages in just a moment. But uh, we were going through some of the earnings yesterday. Boy, they took like a $3.6 billion write-down because of opioid-related settlements. And it just makes me think, man... I don't know if you want to be nonprofit in in uh, in the pharmacy biz if uh, if if you're potentially subject to uh, uh, you know massive legal settlements uh, like that as as a pharmacy because that like like Walmart is so uh, obviously that's different from being uh, an actual pharmaceutical manufacturer whom I've been uh, critical of on the channel especially uh, yesterday when we talked about 
what the Wall Street Journal had to say. Uh, and it was pretty dang convincing what the Wall Street Journal had to say. Uh, so you have to watch the morning opening live from yesterday to see that. Uh, that was on the 24th. Uh, Enphase was uh, down quite a bit yesterday after a cut from Piper Sandler on potentially weaker solar demand uh, dipping as they noticed solar loans started falling. Now, that actually does not surprise me. Uh, I am a big believer in the real estate slowdown bringing a slowdown to the solar sector. Uh, I uh, really hope to be able to pick up Enphase for substantial discounts within about the next six months. So uh, I, I'm very, very excited to add my position or add a very large position to this company. Uh, but uh, given the recessionary dynamic, I think in the short term, their, uh, their pricing power will be somewhat limited. Uh, okay, so let's see. Boeing uh, just went ahead and reported results. We've got adjusted free cash flow of $3.13 billion. That beats the $2.89 expected. Backlog of $404 billion. Wow, that's quite a backlog. Revenue coming in at 19.98, basically meeting expectations of 20 bill. Good Lord, $20 billion of revenue in a quarter. It's pretty impressive. <laughs> Uh, with, with about that $3 billion, uh, $3.13 billion in adjusted free cash flow. 737 program stabilizing production rate at 31 planes per month. It's impressive. Remember, they just shut down the 747 production line about a month and a half ago. Plans to ramp the 787 production up to 10 per month in fiscal 2025 and 2026. Delivered 152 commercial airplanes. Recorded 376 net orders in Q4. Net orders would be uh, removing uh, cancellations. I mean, that's that's actually an impressive statistic. Uh, Boeing is actually falling slightly, down about 1.3% in the pre-market, but delivering 100 uh, or, or taking 376 net orders in the Q in Q4 really shows you that there's still a lot of demand for planes. This is something that I noticed. We were talking about this a little bit yesterday regarding the airplane manufacturer Embraer, uh, noticing that uh, the plane that I bought that was many that was manufactured by Embraer uh, still has a two-year waiting period, and there's not a single one of my planes with an American registration available for sale right now, which is remarkable because it's one of the most popular uh, and desired business uh, planes that that exists right now. So it's it's quite surprising, but. Um, you know, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure how to evaluate that. Whether that's an inflationary impulse uh, for for markets, or it's a um, uh, you know a pricing power sign for 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 the airplane manufacturers. Uh, I personally think that's pricing power for the manufacturers. I think the airlines get screwed by that because you don't get your planes when you need them, and as you enter potentially a recessionary environment, you you end up uh, suffering from not only a higher debt load but potentially more competitive costs. Whereas for uh, airplane manufacturers, I think they have plenty of latitude to still raise prices uh, as, as much as that could contribute to inflation. I'm not convinced that airplane manufacturing is uh, a heavy enough weight to, uh, it's, it certainly wouldn't be in a, a CPI basket, right? <laughs> this might be in like PPI, but uh, actually I, I don't even know where that is measured. It has to be just considered as part of freight uh, or, or transportation or something, but I, I cannot imagine that the cost of planes sits anywhere near <laughs> consumer the consumer price index. But um, it's actually an interesting question. Maybe somebody can evaluate that and leave a comment. <laughs> uh, anywho, 
So, uh, okay, yeah, Boeing, uh, let's see here. I just take a peek at how it's reacting. You know, obviously, Microsoft actually, you know, going, going, okay, Boeing's down about 4% now. Uh, we're getting a sort of a reversal on a lot of the um, excitement yesterday in cloud. Uh, yesterday, when I covered Microsoft's earnings, one of the big things I uh, talked about was this idea that I'm nervous about cloud. I was I was initially optimistic by the Microsoft results prior to them providing their forecast, right? Their forecast is what tanked uh, the market. But I was initially concerned about Microsoft, uh, well, well, the software sector, thinking that I would prefer to be in the chip sector, mostly because you have higher free cash flows, and in my opinion, you have higher pricing power longer term. Uh, just given the the, uh, the the capex requirements in uh, in, in essentially manufacturing and, and chip design than uh, than compared to software, uh, I believe software is substantially more competitive, uh, and I think this is very simply exemplified by Taiwan Semiconductors, which has a 92% uh, a grasp on the advanced microchip market. That is massive. This is a massive grasp that they have. Now, of course, uh, the software sector uh, is is also getting a lot of negative attention, not just now because of the negativity coming out of the earnings call uh, from Microsoft, which apparently was also suffering technical difficulties, which doesn't help. Uh, but also there, there are substantial downgrades that we're seeing from Wall Street. For example, prior, this is prior, and then I want to cover what happened with Microsoft. Prior to the Microsoft report, we, we had a Wall Street reports suggesting that application software companies likely face revenue downgrades ahead of Q4 earnings calls. Several percentage points of growth expectations may be shaved off going into 2023. Analysts think that average revenue growth rates could come in below 15%, while the current consensus for software is 17 to 18%. Now, I want you to keep that in mind that the consensus is 17 to 18% software growth because we're about to go through the Microsoft earnings report. And uh, well, we're gonna go through the earnings call. And uh, while uh, Azure, Microsoft Azure, actually beat in expectations uh, for the last quarter, their forecast was not so great. In fact, spoiler alert, their forecast for Azure was flat for the next quarter. And forecasts from Wall Street were that uh, future cloud growth would be somewhere between 17 to 18% in aggregate. You've got uh, consensus estimates here uh, that I'll go ahead and show up on screen now. These are consensus estimates here. And you can see revenue growth consensus estimates calendar period here. Uh, Bill.com expecting to have grown double in 2022, but only growing by about 36 to 30% in 23, 24. Now, that's not like actually terrible. That's actually still pretty dang good. Intuit expected to only grow about 8% in 2023, followed by 13%. Uh, we've got ADP over here, seven and seven. Paycom, twenty three, twenty two. GoDaddy, six, nine. Shopify coming down to twenty twenty two. Squarespace, eleven and fourteen. Wix, nine, fourteen. Average consensus here, seventeen to eighteen uh, percent, just based on on, on sort of this uh, this group here. We do notice obviously that uh, Microsoft is, is is not in this uh, uh, this list here, but uh, uh, you know coming in with essentially flat expectations for growth on Azure, not great. And that comes despite uh, expectations that the uh, server uh, industry will actually do well. Downgrades uh, coming due to obviously uh, slower commercial seat adoptions uh, or expectations for that, slower consumer growth, 
limited pricing leverage. That's actually interesting because you're going to see that in the Microsoft earnings call in just a moment. You're going to see limited pricing leverage, which I like to call PP. So you're going to see limited PP. Why are you going to see limited PP? Well, because you're going to see Microsoft executives talk about optimizing growth. Uh, and that's not them optimizing growth. It's their customers optimizing. And they think we're actually going to go through about a one-year period of optimization. Now, they believe that once you optimize and after you optimize, then you will be able to get back to doing more work. However, they think we're going to go through a one-year period of optimization. Lengthier sales cycles and slower approval timeframes are potentially likely to stall user expansion and limit pricing power, suggests a Bloomberg. The net percentage of business owners expecting the economy to improve is close to all-time lows at negative 51%, and this is likely to weigh on discretionary tech spending. Keep in mind, yesterday we were looking at Mike Wilson's Morgan Stanley report, uh, or Mike Wilson's uh, FUD report, I should say, from Morgan Stanley, uh, and uh, we, we talked about uh, exactly uh, business confidence and how potentially low that business confidence is right now, and how I actually think when business confidence is low, it's one of the best times to potentially cannibalize your competition, work harder, and do your best to keep growing and not contracting. Very important. Uh, okay, so let's go jump into that Microsoft earnings call. So Microsoft earnings call right here. So let's take a look. I, I'm just going to read, the, uh, in my opinion, the most salient pieces. That doesn't mean I hate everything here, just doing my best here. Uh, so we've got the CEO here suggesting, as I meet with customers and partners, a few things are increasingly clear. Just as we saw customers accelerate their digital spend during the pandemic, we are now seeing them optimize that spend. That's a red flag, right? Optimizing spend is basically a euphemism for, uh, people ain't spending as much money with Microsoft Step Pro. <laughs> we saw new highs for Game Pass on gaming with game streaming hours and monthly active devices at records, surpassing 200 or 120 million devices during the quarter. That's fantastic. And thanks to lower energy costs, they, uh, they were actually able to uh, increase their uh, margins on Microsoft Cloud better than expected by two percentage points year over year. However, excluding the impact of an accounting estimate for useful lives, Whoopsies. Microsoft Cloud. Ah, this is. Hold on one second here. Microsoft Cloud gross margin percentage decreased roughly one percentage point, driven primarily by a sales mix to Azure. Uh, so apparently, a little bit of a lower pricing structure there. Uh, if you introduce a lower mix, you end up with uh, a lower. Um, yeah, a, a lower margin. Uh, keep that in mind. I, th I think a lot of folks get confused by that. I'll just explain that really quickly. So let's say that you run a dollar store. And uh, I love this dollar store example. I think it's the easiest to understand. You're the owner of a dollar store. When you sell the little water guns, squirt guns for a buck, it only costs you 10 cents per squirt gun to buy. So you're looking at 90 cents of gross profits. A dollar revenue costs a good sold 10 cents 90 cents of gross profit, right? That's on little squirt guns at the dollar store, let's say. But now let's say it's a recession and people are coming in going, sorry, Charlie, uh, yeah, bite your finger. We're not buying you a squirt gun this time. Instead, we have to spend the dollar that we have on toothpaste. And the toothpaste margins are a lot worse because when you go shopping for toothpaste, you actually have to spend 80 cents to acquire that toothpaste. Well, now your growth profit, gross profit is a buck minus 80 cents or 20 cents, substantially less. And so that's an example where somebody could still spend a dollar on your goods and services, on your gas, so to speak. 
uh, that's an accounting phrase. <laughs> uh, but your your margin went to crap. Instead of having 80 cents of gross profit, you only have 20 cents of gross profit. Terrible. Your margins got destroyed because people shifted to a product that has lower margins for you. Unfortunately, it sounds like compared to Microsoft Cloud, Azure uh, uh, provides a lower margin. It's quite interesting. Okay, uh, however, they are excited about Azure with constant currency growth in the mid 30%. That's looking backward. Just wait for the forecast. All right, ready for that? Here we go. So Microsoft tells us in our commercial business, we expect business trends that we saw at the end of December to continue into January, February, and March. While customers are more cautious in their spend, we also have the opportunity to improve our execution given our strong position in global growth markets. In commercial bookings, with a declining expiration base or expiring base and a strong prior year of comparable sales essentially for Azure contracts, we expect growth to be womp, 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 relatively flat year over year. We expect consistent execution across our core annuity sales motions, blah, blah, blah. Basically, hey, we think the company is still gonna do great and we're super excited about our company, but unfortunately, the slowdown we saw in December is going to continue in January and, uh, and, and everybody else is at fault. We're still performing and firing on all cylinders but everybody's just spending less money. And unfortunately, that means instead of being excited about 30% growth for Microsoft Azure, we're actually gonna be flat. And given that Bloomberg is pricing in 18 to 20%, uh, or Wall Street potentially is pricing in 18 to 20-ish percent, maybe it was 17 to 18%, anyway, um, growth for cloud, and we're gonna be growing at a grand total of zero, maybe we'll even be negative, things just ain't that great right now. Okay, that's like my like super basic explanation of what Microsoft said. And so if you're wondering why uh, in the pre-market you are seeing uh, software companies sell down, see 3AI down about 2.75%. You've actually got Trade Desk down 2.5%, CrowdStrike down 2.5%, Microsoft down 2.4%. Uh, I, I mean, almost the entire software as a services business has, has rotated down on these Microsoft earnings. This is why. Although most of the market is red here in pre-market, including the solar companies, uh, such as uh, Enphase, uh, SunPower, and Sunrun, uh, all down about four to four and a half percent. Solar Edge only down about three percent. I do expect that to continue. So if you are exposed to solar stocks, I do expect that sort of pain to continue. However, I expect there to be some opportunities to really increase your share of ownership in solar companies once we get to more pain in the real estate sector. In Azure, our per-user business should continue to benefit from the Microsoft 365 suite momentum, though we expect continued moderation in the growth rate given the size of our installed base. In other words, thank you, law of large numbers. Law of large numbers means once you have so many people on your platform, it's really hard to continue growing, and ultimately you just hope to keep things stable. Oh no, but what do we have here? As I noted earlier, we exited the last quarter of 2022 with Azure growth in the mid 30s. We expect Q3 growth to potentially decelerate four to five points in constant currency. So that is uh, you know, to be reiterated by over here about this potential uh, growth that is flat year over year. So in other words, uh, this is actually a little bit confusing. In constant, I don't know. We expect Q3 growth to this. I wonder if this is this could be overall 
Uh, I wonder if this right here must be overall growth or sweet growth. Since they did say Azure, they expect to be somewhere flat. But either way, you, I mean, you could see the information here and try to make your own deduction. Um, in our on-premise server business, we expect revenue to decline in the low single digits. Uh, that is a revenue decline. I said that correctly. Revenue decline, low single digits. That's a decline of, again, maybe 3 4%. As demand for our hybrid solutions will be more than offset by the unfavorable foreign exchange impact. Search and advertising, excluding total acquisition costs, should be in the high single digits, roughly seven points faster. Now, this is actually good, right? We like to hear that advertising spend is up. And you are seeing companies like Carnival Cruise Lines, for example, boost their spending substantially just to try to fill up ships. That's what they're really trying to fill up right now is they're trying to make sure that if they are sailing, which they are, they are sailing with the highest amount of potential paying customers. Tech as a percentage of GDP is likely to be higher going forward. However, uh, this is a, this is a, this is a subtle way of saying, hey, look, you know, even if we go into a recession, uh, we think people are going to spend less money on other things relative to tech. In other words, if the rest of the world falls, I'm just going to make an extreme example here, 10% in spend, tech might only fall 5% in spend, just as an example, right? That's roughly what they're making uh, an argument there of. And one of the things we're looking back to are some savings uh, for workloads. And that's, okay, this is the optimization cycle that I was talking about, where at first you optimize, you take about a year to optimize, and then you can start thinking about new projects. This is really the CEO of trying to, uh, this is really the CEO trying to paint this vision that, hey, look, man, in life, we optimize. And, and sometimes you go through about a year of optimizing, and then you're back at making money again. So don't worry, the future is bright for Microsoft. I don't think it's going to take two years. I think it'll take one year of pain. So in other words, a little bit of, um, you know, uh, trying to exemplify what's going on. Uh, Microsoft is doing so. Uh, however, still painting the picture of pain. So if you're wondering why we're having some software issues, this could potentially be why. Now, I, I want you to also think logically for a moment about software, okay? So let's, let's understand this for a moment. Let me give you an example. Let's say you have a team of interns and you want everyone to make, uh, I don't know, to, ed to edit TikToks, okay? And what you're gonna do is you're going to buy everyone uh, an Adobe Cloud subscription so that they that way they could use Premiere, right? You want everyone on Premiere editing your, your TikToks, right? Let's just say as an example. And then let's say you go into a recession and you're a normal company with, I don't know, a thousand interns, right? Well, in boom time, you're like, everybody gets an Adobe Cloud subscription. Let's go, a thousand cloud seats. Well, in a recession, most businesses say, okay, well, we're actually not going to hire uh, new people. We're actually going to lay off and we're gonna be stuck with, uh, let's just say, 900 people instead of 1,000. Well, immediately what you've done for Adobe is you've actually not provided cloud growth. You actually just provided cloud contraction because by, by, by laying off people in a recessionary time, what happens? Well, you just cut 10% of your workforce. Well, you just took away 10 seats from Adobe. But not only that, you might also say, hey, do we really need 900 seats? Or how about like, 300 of y'all 
just borrow the other dude's login or computer when you need it. Since 300 of y'all are focused on, I don't know, playing basketball more instead or basically doing something else at the company, let's just, in addition to laying off people, let's also optimize how many people we're, we're paying for cloud seats for. So now all of a sudden we're gonna take that down to 600. So all of a sudden you have a 40% drop in, in seats that are being offered to cloud uh, uh, subscription services. And so what do you have? Well, you have a disaster, right? So, so this, this is a situation where it's basically, if you're growing at zero, so basically if, if, if you're a cloud provider and you could keep like revenue stable during a recession, you're actually doing good. So as much as Microsoft is sort of this, this negative canary in the coal mine for software services companies, 0% growth in a recessionary environment is actually good when it comes to cloud, especially in an environment where we're seeing uh, as many tech layoffs as we are seeing. So that's something pretty important to pay attention to, uh, my, my take. Now, uh, how could this affect the chips market? It's actually a great question. Shane Huff here in our chat asked that question. How will Microsoft affect chips like Taiwan Semiconductors and AMD? Yeah, so first it's worth noting that uh, OpenAI uses uh, Microsoft uh, cloud services, and most of the cloud services provided by Microsoft uh, use hardware uh, like um, uh, NVIDIA chips, mostly NVIDIA chips, but also AMD chips. And obviously a reduction in the expansion in cloud uh, makes us wonder like, hey, isn't it possible if, if cloud spend is going to go down, that chip spend could go down? Absolutely. Uh, and I think a lot of that we have already seen. We've already seen a lot of that pain. Uh, now, there were some pieces, which I thought was actually very interesting. There were some pieces that I was reading about yesterday. Let me see if I can find it here. Uh, there were some pieces about how we could potentially actually see an acceleration uh, in uh, Microsoft, or sorry, in, in chip spend as uh, the demand for uh, higher quality servers accelerates the refresh cycle for chip spend. So keep that in mind. As uh, as these cloud companies want to get back to growth, they have to figure out, okay, well, well how do we potentially uh, differentiate ourselves from our competitors? Well, unfortunately, the way you differentiate yourself from your competitors is you try to prove that your product is a better product or a faster product or a more capable product. And unfortunately you do that by refreshing the chipsets that you have in your server industry uh, or, or your server division. So uh, while obviously we expect the chip sector to slow down, there is at least some enthusiasm that as cloud slows down, companies that suffer from those cloud slowdowns are going to be very incentivized to try to get back to growth as quickly as possible, potentially double down on their investments into chips to make that a potential reality. Uh, that's just an idea. Uh, you know, I think ultimately everything slows down when we go into uh, a recession. Hardware uh, certainly being one of those sectors that, that is expected to slow down. Uh, and, and a lot of that fortunately seems to have been priced in already. Obviously, no guarantees on that, but um, yeah, that's uh, that's quite interesting. In fact, I, I have a piece here. Let me see. I'll, I'll read this out because I think the question is very good. 
This isn't exactly the one that I was looking for, but this one could be interesting. Talks about Taiwan Semiconductors and Samsung sales. Taiwan Semiconductors and Samsung and other foundries could expect revenue of their advanced packing business key to producing chiplet-based semiconductors to double by 2025 and become a major growth structure. Chiplet structures are likely to become increasingly popular in laptops following the introduction of uh, AMD's first chiplet-based laptop semiconductor. That's quite interesting. I think this has to do with the five nanometer chipsets. I'm actually not super familiar with chip, uh, chiplets, uh, and, and I can't find that piece right now, but I'm gonna try to Google it really quick. Uh, server chips, uh, l uh, shorter, shorter refresh cycle. That's what you kind of wanna look for, is that potential server refresh cycle. Uh, <laughs> I will do one more hike, uh, look here. But uh, I'm generally a big fan of being the pickaxe seller versus uh, investing in the gold. Now, uh, that can come with risks, obviously, as well, because it does still rely on the gold performing very well. But, uh, yeah, okay, it doesn't look like I'm going to be able to get that article, but I'll find it eventually, and uh, I will circle back on that, but I think that's a very good question. So anyway, that, that explains some of the softness that we're seeing in software, and it probably is going to weigh on uh, the, the overall stock market today until we get some more earnings that, that hopefully give us a little bit better news. So in case you're wondering why are things red today, there's your answer. <laughs> All right, let's see here. What else do we have? Uh, yeah, I'm so surprised I cannot find it because I had it and I saved it but I didn't know where I put it. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and listen in here to this talk on AT&T. The valuation metrics that people have. So when we have companies trading at high premiums, you know, today Microsoft announced earnings and they're talking about slowing cloud growth. I mean, Microsoft tasted 24 times earnings. We own it, we own a small piece of it, uh, but it's a big part of the S&P, it's, it's over 5%. So we're getting into an area where I think investors are gonna be looking to see what do I wanna own for the next two to five years especially if rates are going to stay kind of where they are, uh, if not a little bit higher. If you own Microsoft and if they're talking about the slowing crowd, cloud growth, does that mean you sell it at this point? I, I think you have to be very careful. We're looking at it very carefully. I, I think there are going to be other opportunities there. Uh, I, I don't know I would own it in the size that it is in the market. I, I like the company. I like a lot of attributes. It's cash flow positive, a lot of uh, recurring revenue. Uh, but I think you can, you can look for other opportunities, especially if it's a sizable position. Surat, thanks. I, I didn't ask you, do you own AT&T or Verizon? Uh, we do not own either of those. We own Microsoft. Okay. Surat, thanks. Always great to see you. Right. Thanks, Vic. All right, coming up, uh, the Department of Justice suing Google over its dominance in the ad market. We'll break down uh, that suit with former White House technology uh, head, Anish Chopra. And uh, then next, plus uh, Tesla up big so far this year. But can it keep the momentum going? We'll hear the bull and bear cases as the company gears up for uh, earnings. Squawk Box will be right back. Oh, well, that should be entertaining. We can, we'll, we'll definitely uh, chime in for that, and we'll see what we have uh, on the uh, bull and bear thesis for Tesla. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, I, uh, on the Google um, investigation, I can provide some quick uh, insight into that. So. Uh, Basically, the Department of Justice sued. They say that Google has a monopolistic control over the digital ad market. 
The accusation is that uh, essentially Google is using anti-competitive, exclusionary, and unlawful means uh, to, to es essentially assert its dominance over advertising and digital tech. The United States says Google is violating the Sherman Antitrust Act, which prohibits activities that restrict interstate commerce and competition in marketplaces. Department of Justice says Google has, um, let's see here, let's see, da, 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 uh, competitive control because it controls numerous aspects of the digital ad market, including websites used by uh, publishers to sell ad space. Google says the Department of Justice is doubling down on a flawed argument that would slow innovation, raise advertising fees, and make it harder for thousands of small businesses and publishers to grow. Womp, womp, womp. <laughs> uh, yeah, I do I don't know. I mean, it's, I don't know. The amount of times Google gets sued is uh, quite shocking. Uh, and it's regularly created uh, substantially large headwinds for companies like Meta and, and Google uh, for, for people's uh, interest in, in, in investing in the companies because they are so exposed to uh, lawsuits. The bigger you get, the more you get sued. I think that ultimately is the case. But then again, you know, like, Google's like probably just one of the better services is <laughs> one of the crazy things to think about. Um, so anyway, all right, let's uh, take a brief listen and see what uh, Bloomberg has for us. And, and I think that's the downside. It's like as soon as you have a really good product or service and become so large on Bloomberg, so as, uh, as soon as you have a better product or service and uh, you actually become so strong in a market, uh, then, then you end up uh, getting said, oh, you're, you're too good. <laughs> you're too strong. It's pretty wild. So looking at some stocks here on pre-market, EXBI, uh, real estate stock down about 5%. Uh, I'd actually personally be a little bit concerned about uh, a lot of activity here in pre-market. Actually a little bit concerned about the, uh, how many realtors are going to be leaving the industry. I'm not a big fan of uh, investing in real estate related stocks, including Airbnb right now. I actually think we might be going through a little bit of an Airbnb bubble. We'll see what happens uh, well, uh, there. Uh, Shopify actually up about 2% here in the pre-market. We'll see how that ends up moving. Uh, and that's probably on the backs of them having increased re uh, rates about uh, 30% on some of their, their fees. Uh, <laughs> those darn 7 a.m. candles. Yeah, no kidding. All right, let's see here. Uh, load me up with gold. Oh, buy real estate with house hack and load up uh, the houses with safes of gold. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know about that. I heard about top officials in Ukraine resigning after being rocked by corruption. Uh, I mean, it, it doesn't surprise me that uh, you're going to end up facing. I haven't heard that, but it wouldn't surprise me. I think uh, it's very difficult when you barely have a government together and, and people are dying all over the place not to expect uh, at least some degree of elevated corruption. Uh, Azure is nice until Microsoft Cloud outage hits the kids' Xbox. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Microsoft layoff plans to lay off about 10,000 and then wants to invest 10 billion in AI. Coincidence? I, I, I mean, you know, I, I know there's, there's a lot of, um, there's actually a lot of social media slamming going on for Microsoft around this idea. And, and you're not wrong. It's like, it's kind of like, oh, well, you know, don't you have enough money to pay for the employees? But really what it is, it's um, you end up in a, in a situation where as a business, you, you, you have to optimize, right? And if you have people who, who aren't uh, performing or, or, aren't, or just aren't necessary in the business, they shouldn't be there. Uh, whereas uh, making investments in the future is still very important. 
Uh, it's, it's sort of like, hey, Tesla, you're spending billions of dollars on new gigafactories. Why are you laying off white collar workers? Because uh, we don't need you. <laughs> you know? I mean, like, it's harsh, but I mean, that's capitalism. And, and uh, hey, look, I'm, I'm not here to say that, uh, you know, uh, there, there shouldn't be social safety nets, but ultimately people just have to get a different job. Uh, yeah, look at that. Meet Kevin. Thank you. <laughs> JPM reduced her price target from 125 to 120 on Tesla. Oh yeah, let's go JPM. <laughs> the global recession isn't as bad or as long as we expect commodities will jump again on stronger than expected recovery and a second wave of inflation. Yeah, that does assume that there will be a second wave of inflation. 1 p.m. PT, 4 p.m. for Tesla time. It's true, Eastern. Yeah. Uh, you know, I I, I still um, I, I know that commodities are a little bit harder to solve supply chains on relative to uh, you know increasing your manufacturing output potential, but uh, you know even even within the commodity sector and even just the transporting of commodities, I'm pretty optimistic that uh, companies are in a position where they would love excess demand right now. And they would love to fill that demand. And as long as they can fill, fill that demand, you don't need to have inflation. Remember, as, as, as demand goes up, as long as supply is willing to meet demand, it, you don't necessarily have to move up the equilibrium price, right? Which means you don't necessarily have to have inflation. Over the last 40 years, we've had substantial uh, growth in GDP, with very little inflation, uh, and, and that's something to consider, right? So uh, let's let's draw that out for a moment and give that a little bit of a look. So, all right, uh, let's see here. Okay, they are not doing the Tesla chat just yet on um, CNBC, so we'll pay attention to that. But anyway, yeah. So so if you have uh, let's see here, demand curve, a supply curve, price, quantity demanded. So, I mean, basic just econ 101 stuff here. Generally, what we think of is as the quantity demanded goes up, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the, and, the, and the supply stays constant, you have to move up the supply chain. Uh, and, and then price will go up, right? You'll, you'll end up move, shifting price up as the quantity demanded moves up. And essentially you get this, this new uh, curve right here, right? Uh, but my belief is that you're not actually going to see something like this. My belief is that as uh, demand quantity uh, moves up, so in other words, we go from demand uh, quantity demanded, let's say uh, zero, to quantity demanded uh, one, what you're actually going to find is I believe you'll find a new line, a new supply demand curve where yes, demand moves up uh, and, and, and uh, on, the, on the supply curve here, but we end up with a completely new chart basically where we end up with new demand say here, but then we also end up with new supply that comes online, let's say there. So let's move this over a little bit. And what do you end up with? There we go, quantity demanded uh, prime. What do you end up with? Actually, potentially exactly the same price. So I think you, you actually, basically, as quantity demanded goes up, I believe uh, quantity supplied will go up, 
which is likely to actually keep prices stable. Uh, now, that's just a thesis, obviously, and I understand that there are limitations to how much of commodities can be supplied, but I believe that the logistics associated with commodities have uh, greatly improved, and I think that where you're probably most likely to see commodity issues is maybe in the lithium carbonate sec uh, sector, but, but beyond that, I don't think in terms of like iron, copper, lumber, uh, we're going to see the kind of explosions that we saw uh, in, um, in, in in 2021 uh, with with massive supply chain dislocations and, and not even having enough trucks or ships or trains to move things on. I, I don't think you're going to run into that issue. That's just my thesis. Could be wrong, obviously. So if I look at the one year right now and I go to metals, let's see what we have. So one year on metals, we're looking at negative 12% on aluminum, negative 5-ish percent on copper, 4 to 5% on copper, lead's down about 10%, tin's down about 29%, zinc's down about 4%, iron uh, is, is plus, depending on what kind of iron, you've got one that's up 8%, one that's down 6%, steel's down about 19 to 20%, gold's up about 4%, silver's down about 1.5%. So it seems like you have more of a commodity trend to the downside. You do, though, have an increase in nickel prices, up about 28% year over year, and lithium prices. Uh, lithium prices have, have gone up substantially. So that's that's my thesis, at, at least on, uh, you know, supply and demand. Yes, Charlie, on trades. Oh, that perfectly reminds me. Remember, you have five days left to check out the programs on Building Your Wealth, a link down below. <laughs> uh, that is going to be the uh, last uh, coupon that we have, massive coupon. And uh, after, and then you get a three-month price guarantee thereafter. Uh, and uh, so, in other words, prices will be going up. So if you want to join and get lifetime access, no better time than now to do so. All right, what's this developing story, CNBC? Filing an antitrust suit against the Silicon Valley giant. Oh, boring. We already covered that. I don't really care about the antitrust suit right now. Okay, we actually have other news to cover. Ah, ah, ah. So, let's get to other news. And the other news that I really want to hit is... Ah, yes. The Fed. Oh, okay. Let's see me juicy one. All right, stand by. So obviously the Federal Reserve is key to what's going on in markets, and we expect that the Federal Reserve at some point will be forced to U-turn, uh, but it is going to require inflation coming down. So what happens in the event inflation does fall faster than expected? And what kind of signals has the Federal Reserve just potentially sent to us? Well, in order to find signals from the Federal Reserve, I personally like to visit our favorite Federal Reserve mouthpiece. And that is Nick T over at the Wall Street Journal. Nick T at the Wall Street Journal seems to be the guy who gets text messages from the Federal Reserve and seems to get some pretty interesting insights from the Federal Reserve. And just about two hours ago, he tweeted a piece that was actually put together by John Roberts, uh, who used to be a Fed economist, and the piece was titled, What If Inflation Comes Down Faster Than the Federal Reserve Expects? Now, this is actually quite an incredible piece because it provides us a little bit of insight into a Federal Reserve economist's base case for what the Fed is going to do 
and a potential future case of what if inflation falls faster than expected. Now, what's really remarkable about that is, given that Nick T from the Wall Street Journal retweeted this, some say it is possible that Jerome Powell or somebody at the Fed could have sent a little message over to Nick T and said, hey, would you mind sharing some light on how we might potentially U-turn and actually cut rates sooner than we're saying we're going to cut rates just so we could kind of feel out how the market responds? Because certainly we don't want to say it, but if you say it, it's okay. This is literally how the Fed plays their communication game. They kind of just talk. They talk, 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 talk. They talk the market kind of in the direction they want. And the fact that Nick T is sending this out this, or is posting this, this uh, uh, John Roberts piece gives me a little bit of hope and hopium is not an investing strategy, but gives me a little bit of a hope that we're actually going to get a little bit more of a dovish Jerome Powell at the next FOMC press conference. But let's go ahead and take a look at this piece because it is fascinating. And as usual, I have done the highlighting for us. <laughs> I, I actually really, I don't know why I tell Lauren, I go, oh my gosh, there's a new piece on the Fed. I gotta go read it. She's like, dude. <laughs> anyway, so um, now uh, John Roberts did post this uh, at the end of uh, 2022, uh, but it was just retweeted uh, by Nick T, uh, T two hours ago. So for the sake of uh, our purposes, this is this is fresh uh, from the signal, in my opinion, that it sends. And it really sets a very interesting path because initially they say, this is sort of your intro here. If inflation comes down more quickly than the Fed anticipates, the Fed would likely cut interest rates sooner. Sooner, for example, than their most recent economic projections when they cut, when where the first cut was actually being priced in in 2024. And the Fed has been saying we won't cut rates in 2023 at all. However, if inflation falls faster, what could that scenario look like? And is it possible that the Fed could actually then reduce the pain on unemployment? Now, I have to just take a moment to pat myself on the back. And no, I'm not trying to do that to pat myself on the back, but I am patting myself on the back. Yesterday, I actually talked about this, uh, about the Federal Reserve and the Mike Wilson FUD pieces. And I said, look, nobody is pricing in the fact, in my opinion, that the Fed can actually slow down the pain they cause to unemployment. The Fed has a dual mandate, maximum employment and stable prices. And if prices are stable, they will take the foot off the, the sort of economic brakes and stop with the pain they're causing to unemployment because they don't want people to lose their jobs. People employed is actually a good thing and it's part of their mandate. So as long as prices are stable, they'll stop crushing jobs. We talked about that idea yesterday. So with the base case, Mr. John Roberts from, uh, or the former Federal Reserve economist, assumes on his base case that the Fed will actually reach a terminal rate of 5.1%. Uh, now that's the base case scenario. And at the same time, we'll probably see some form of increase in the unemployment rate, especially as we hit a recession, since the smallest increase in the unemployment rate in a recession was in 1950, and it was around 1.5%. And you usually tend to see at least a 1% increase in unemployment. 
uh, one to one and a half percent increase in unemployment, at least expectations are such and history is such in a recession. So there is a likelihood of getting to about that 4.6% unemployment rate in 2024. Unless, of course, inflation happens to fall faster than expected. And this is where John Roberts gives us the case for a low inflation alternative. I now consider an alternative scenario, in which case inflation falls faster than baseline. Inflation might be lower than most forecasts expect for a number of reasons. To be clear, I assume or consider lower than expected inflation to be a risk. In other words, that is not the baseline scenario. It is sort of a, you know, more other scenario. <laughs> it's like if your baseline scenario is, I think something is 60% likely to happen, then you have what are called tails. You usually have a left tail and a right tail. Those might be 20% chances. Higher inflation, lower inflation, right? As an example in this case. <clears throat> so uh, supply conditions, and here are some reasons why inflation could come in lower. Supply conditions could improve more quickly than expected. Now, this is what I believe, right? I, I, we mentioned this sort of as we just went through our supply and demand curves. And I suggested that, as, as we see here, it's entirely possible that we could see the entire supply and demand curves shift to the right, where quantity demanded actually goes up but prices paid actually stay stable or go down and continue that path of disinflating or potentially deflating. That is entirely possible if supply chains are or have improved the way that hopefully they uh, are expected to have. Now, John Roberts goes on to say, prices could improve, especially sensitive to reductions in aggregate demand, especially among goods that were in short supply during the pandemic. The latest consumer price data suggests that might be happening amongst core goods already, and that could end up happening in services as well. The very light, tight labor market could rebalance more quickly uh, than the change in the unemployment rate would typically suggest, reducing pricing pressures in unemployment. In these scenarios, with lower inflation in both scenarios, with quarterly core inflation in the first quarter of next year falling to uh, or 2023, already falling to about 3.5% and potentially 2.5% by the second quarter, then the Federal Reserve could come, become convinced by the second quarter of 2023 about the durability of lower inflation and then begin cutting rates by the second quarter. That's pretty remarkable. Nobody's expecting the Fed to start cutting rates by Q2. At least some of the bond market, yes, is expecting some rate cuts by the end of the year. But the bond market's really only seeing those as soon as maybe the third or fourth quarter, but not the second quarter. And this is a case where John Roberts, a former Federal Reserve economist, is saying, look, if inflation ends up proving itself to be more stable and lower than what the Federal Reserve is expecting by the first and second quarters of 2023 now, then we could actually end up seeing the Federal Reserve cut rates by Q2. That's as soon as getting cuts. That's basically getting a pause in March because I think we're going to get 25 in February. I think we get a pause in March uh, and then it's possible we start getting cuts by May or June. And that's basically what uh, John Roberts here is suggesting, not as a base case, but as a potential case. As a result, financial conditions ease. This would mean stocks up and treasury yields down. With the 10-year treasury yield potentially dropping 60 basis points, that would be the 10-year sitting around uh, potentially 2.9%. That's where we're going to start getting into territory where it's going to be, we're going to start looking at buy the dip time for real estate. Especially if inflation falls quickly, the real estate market will, will probably recover quite quickly. And so I'm very excited 
not to prepare for our dip shopping. But anyway, the unemployment rate is 4.2% in this scenario. In the scenario, only slightly higher than uh, when uh, 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 basically uh, the forecast. By the end of 2024, the improvement is still larger with the unemployment rate at about 4% versus the 4.6% expectations. Inflation averages 2.75% in 2023 and is close to the Fed's 2% target from 2024 onwards. Could a still more aggressive policy response lead to a better income? In the simulation shown with green dots dashed above, the Fed cuts rates by 1% by the middle of 2024, or sorry, by the middle of 2023, after which it rises gradually, uh, or sorry, after, after which it rises gradually, the 10-year yield falls to 3%. Such a policy would uh, eliminate any increases in the unemployment rate. Okay, so essentially he's going through these different potential scenarios here where you could actually see the Fed, uh, look at that, you could actually see the Federal Reserve take two stances in the event inflation comes down more quickly than expected. They could actually end up cutting rates from 4 to 5% down to 1% and then slowly raise rates again to 2.5%. Or they could cut rates to about 2 to 2.5% and then essentially keep them there. So John Roberts actually goes through two scenarios where if inflation comes down faster than expected, the Fed is actually going to prioritize saving jobs. He's basically saying the Fed's going to flip-flop and they're going to do everything in their power to save jobs, even if that means aggressively cutting rates and then raising rates again. Now, there is a big concern on Wall Street that, well, the Fed doesn't want to repeat the mistakes of the 70s cut rates, and then have to raise rates again. However, if inflation proves to stay low, then that's not actually a problem. The problem in the 1970s was that the Fed started cutting rates before they were convinced that inflation was actually down or would stay down, and inflation break-evens hadn't actually come down uh, at all. Expectations were that five-year, well, I mean, they'd come down somewhat, but not to to low levels. Um, Inflation break-evens were substantially high uh, in in the 70s, mostly because it was the first time we were fighting inflation on a currency backed by nothing other than air and trust. That's because we left the gold standard in the early 70s. So uh, you do have a lot of elements that are different about this cycle, but then again, suggesting this time is different is is generally dangerous. Now, keep in mind, this is not a base case, right? This is, this is just, hey, like, what if inflation comes down faster? But the fact that the Fed's mouthpiece, Nick T over the Wall Street Journal, is retweeting research about how the Fed could potentially dramatically cut rates in the event inflation falls quickly by the second quarter of 2023 is actually, in my opinion, quite remarkable because it shows that the Fed is starting to think about, uh-oh, what do we do? If inflation plummets, they're starting to think about that. And that, I think, is quite interesting. Now, of course, that does leave us to where markets and the Fed still disagree, and it has to do with wages and the wage inflation problem. Now, we actually did just have Walmart increase wages. Uh, Now, I want to give you a little bit of insight into Walmart, okay? Because initially, this makes us concerned. Walmart just announced that they're raising wages from $12 to $14. Some folks suggest that this is possibly going to uh, indicate to the Fed that workers still have pricing power, wage pricing power, uh, and that ultimately this could lead to some form of wage price spiral. I disagree. Here's why I disagree. 
First of all, Walmart raised wages to $12 in 2021. However, Target raised wages to a minimum of $15 in March of uh, 2021. Uh, actually, it was, sorry, it was March of 2022. That, uh, that came briefly after Walmart raised wages to $12. It took Walmart almost an entire year to go from $12 to $14, still not as high as Target. It took them almost an entire year to try to compete with Target. And this is possibly because Walmart actually lost money in the third quarter and their free cash flow is trash. Don't get me wrong. In the second quarter of 2022, Walmart had $2.1 billion of net income. However, they spent $4.7 billion on inventory. And if you look at their cash flow statement, they actually ended up with negative $3.7 billion in operating cash in a quarter where they actually had net income. Well, unfortunately then, if you go to Q3, because of their opioid uh, lawsuit settlement, where they had to write off $3.6 billion or spend money on this opioid settlement, they actually ended up with a loss in Q3. So Walmart actually hasn't been in a great position to be able to raise wages because they don't have that much freaking money which is insane because Walmart's stock has actually not performed terribly over the last year, but that's not because of fundamentals in my opinion. I believe Walmart stock has done well over the past year because it's the most stupid proof trade ever. Oh my God, we're going into a recession. What do you do? You shift to staples. What are staples? Walmart, Costco, it's simple. Energy, right? It is the most simple and stupid proof tactical trade you can make. Recession, uh, staples. That's literally what institutions and Wall Street suits do. It's stupid in my opinion though, because it ignores fundamental realities. And that's that Walmart has a cash problem. I know again, that sounds insane to say, but if you look at their cash flow statements, if you look at their earnings over the past few quarters, they are massively negative in free cash flow. It's scary. Uh, and now part of that again, because of inventory buildup, but consider this, I did some very quick math and assumed a $2 wage increase. Well, I mean, they said they're raising the wages $2, so that's not actually an assumption. Uh, and we believe that is actually going to affect about 340,000 of Walmart's 1.6 million employees. And if you take 304, and that's not even a, a considering the effect that it might have on all the upper individuals wanting to get more pay then as well. But anyway, a $2 price increase on 340,000 workers, assuming 20 hours worked per week at just 46 weeks per year, and the reason I do that is because of paid time off or whatever, uh, that could potentially, or, or just even unpaid time off, that could increase uh, uh, Walmart's costs by $625 million per year. $625 million per year of cost uh, is about $156 million of cost per quarter when they're already free cash flow negative per quarter. Then you look at uh, a potentially uh, a, 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 a um, you know, maybe 25 hours worked per week at 52 weeks per year. You're sitting at somewhere at, uh, at closer to $200 million per quarter or $885 million, almost a billion dollars in higher costs just because of a $2 wage increase. So it's no surprise that Walmart has so substantially lagged target in raising wages. In my opinion, it's because they don't have that much money. Uh, you know, people like to say how great uh, uh, Walmart is doing, but personally, not that enthused by that. Now, this is expected to increase the average hourly wage at uh, Walmart by, uh, to about 
sorry, uh, $17.50. Uh, and uh, this is actually according to a piece put together by the Wall Street Journal. So I'm not kind of pulling this out of thin air. I always like to uh, provide sources. <laughs> so this, uh, we can actually see that on screen here. Take a look at this. Starting next month, Walmart will increase wages to $14, up from $12. Uh, that is to try to compete with competitors like Amazon and Target who have a $15 minimum wage. This will push the company's average hourly wages to uh, around, uh, well, they say over $17.50 per hour. Uh, Walmart uh, suggested that the average would be around $17. This is also where we see uh, around 340,000 individuals at Walmart expected to get these pay bubs despite recently announced layoffs. And they would see this raise on their March paychecks. So if you work at Walmart, March is when you expect to see a difference here. Now, what I thought was actually very interesting about this, because there is this concern of, okay, well, what does this have to do for the Fed? Like, is this potentially going to send negative signals as, as like a, a wage price spiral, right? Uh, well, so what I did is I, I thought to myself, okay, well, where, where do we measure average hourly earnings for the United States? And, and maybe where can we get some insights? And then I'm like, oh, well, there happens to be this thing called the Bureau of Labor Statistics Labor Report. But by the way, this is the kind of stuff we do in the office all day long. We just sit and look at charts and data and research. And in a weird way, we kind of love it. <laughs> but anyway, we're like, oh, look, how convenient. We have payrolls data. And what does payroll data tell us for December of 2022? Well, it tells us that the average hourly earnings in the United States are actually $32.82, which means the average Walmart worker is still working for somewhere around 40% of, well, I, I guess, yeah, no, that's true. Average pay is $17.50. That means the average hourly worker at Walmart is making just 53% of what the average worker in America is making. So if you want to make more money and you're working at Walmart, be average somewhere else and you'll nearly double your income. It's kind of crazy. Let's see which particular areas you could make more money. Look at this. You want to become a miner? Look at that. Or a logger? Miners and loggers are making an average of 37 bucks an hour. Go into manufacturing, you're making about 31 bucks an hour. Go work for Tesla. Uh, you want to go work in, uh, in retail trade? Oh, wait, that's what Walmart is. No surprise. It's the lowest category. Actually, sorry, leisure and hospitality is actually the lowest category. So if you want to make the least amount of money, go work in leisure and hospitality. Want to make the most amount of money? Go be a miner or a logger. Now, I, that might sound crazy. Or, or look at this. Go work in utilities. Be a lineman for the utilities. Or wow, go work in financial services, 42 bucks an hour, 48 bucks an hour for utilities. That's really impressive. Get yourself a license in something and get into professional and business services, 39 bucks an hour. You can't make this stuff up. If you work in retail or in leisure and hospitality, you're probably making substantially less money than the average worker in America. So if you want more money, be average in a different industry. Something fascinating to think about. But anyway, um, you know, th this is sort of my response to this idea that this this Walmart price increase is is really going to be indicative of some kind of wage price spiral. Uh, I don't think so. Uh, however, we do have this Barron's piece that I want to go through as well, uh, and this talks about you know the Fed and markets sort of diverging here a little bit. Uh, consumer demand falling, evidenced by slower retail sales. Wholesale prices are cooling, suggesting further inflation relief on the horizon. Uh, however, because of uh, uh, despite these signs of economic slowing. 
uh, the Fed is still pledging interest rates hikes. You know, we've got a lot of communication that we're expecting this 25 BP hike. And, uh, and then the Fed wants to get over 5%. You know, they've said that probably 300 times uh, in, in the past uh, week alone. Okay, I'm obviously exaggerating, but they're pretty clear, at least at this point, they want to get over 5%. That's because they have to lie to us. Okay, I'm not trying to be tinfoil hat here, but the Fed cannot come out too early and say, well, things are looking great with inflation. The second that happens, I guarantee you S&P 500 is up 10%. Any kind of uh, tech stocks up 20 to 30%. The, the, the market move would be so violent to the upside, you probably get circuit breakers going off to the upside. It'd be insane. That's why they have to do that slowly. <laughs> That's also why the stock market is coming off bottoms. But anyway, uh, okay, let's see here. Wall Street and Fed path forward. Okay, what do we have over here? Fed officials laser focused on ensuring that the core services sector inflation slows. Uh, other, and, and we're starting to see that certainly in housing, but we've got to make sure those come down. The Fed's concern uh, is that even as good prices uh, deflate, housing costs slow, inflation will hit a floor well above its 2% target. That's the concern due to persistent strength in what's known as the super core services. These would be things uh, like uh, medical services, uh, transportation services. These are things that we want to pay attention to, certainly wages, right? Uh, leisure, hospitality services. Those are some of your more super core. Uh, services. Generally, you take out um, uh, housing and I believe you take out auto insurance and repairs for Supercore, but I have to double check the auto one. Certainly housing comes out because it represents like 30 something percent of CPI. But anyway, recent progress on average hourly earnings was a good sign that the economy was cooling in terms of the inflation fight. Obviously, bad sign for the overall economy. Fed still isn't convinced. The longer market discounts the importance of the Fed places on wages. So really, you've got a, a Barron's piece here saying, look, the Fed wants to prevent the unwarranted easing of financial conditions, which would complicate the path forward. This is what I was talking about with the Fed having to keep that hard face on. So uh, a little bit of a piece here from uh, Barron's on, on this from the Federal Reserve. Uh, I personally think the Walmart information is, is, is quite fascinating. Uh, and it's, it's worth noting that really here, uh, blue collar is what's actually holding ground. I was thinking about this actually a lot for house hack. And I think maybe over the next couple of years, blue collar areas for investments for house hack could actually be quite interesting because there will be a lot more reshuffling in white collar and a less reshuffling in blue collar where wages are going up and people are, are, are you know, making more money at their jobs, which is great. But uh, white collar, you know, layoffs create risk for, for real estate. So this is something that, uh, that I'm fascinated about paying attention to. So I don't know. I find that interesting. Hopefully you find that interesting. If you found that interesting, make sure to subscribe, hit that bell, get yourself a 30% off coupon code. Don't spill your coffee like I almost did. And um, yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's see what Bloomberg has for us. I mean, what are you looking at? Starbucks coffee sales? What are the tea leaves that are leading in the leading indicator? Holy smokes, look at this. Armando Aguilar says, I'm in the utility business. Lowest paid guy is $36. <laughs> See, this is what I'm talking about. Like, there are so many ways for you to increase your income. I'll tell you, the amount of people that, that come to me and, and they say, Kevin, Kevin, I, 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 wanna, I want passive income. I want to invest. I want passive income that are, are not interested in actually increasing their top line blows my mind. I hate to say it, but it's probably most people who get started watching people 
on the internet that's like, here's how to make $100 a day, or here's how to make, you know, a thousand bucks a month of passive income or whatever. Let me just like grab those people by the shoulders and shake them and go, if you want to retire early, work harder now, increase your freaking income. It's so much easier to invest when your income is higher. You can qualify for more real estate. You can buy more wedge deals. You can invest more money in stocks. It's It would be ludicrous not to try to increase your income if you're trying to retire earlier. It would be ludicrous. I'm a county electrician getting 50. 50 bucks. Wow, for the county? Wow. That's actually really impressive. Wow. Um, that's, that's, that's awesome, man. Uh, that's, that's incredible. Tarjay. Um, I don't think I said it enough, but I appreciate how early came. Oh, thanks, man. Uh, appreciate that, Charlie. That's a nice compliment of you to say about the waking up early and the prep for the videos. Thank you for that. Uh, if you scroll back, you'll see my talk about Microsoft. I did talk about Microsoft and their guidance. Hewlett Packard Silicon has a process to make fumed silica for a fraction of the price. Third geo plant is running and expecting release of 10. I don't know if that's Hewlett Packard and I don't know anything about fumed silica, but it sounds cool. That includes vacation, holidays, sick days, union backed. Wow. Most poop on trades work and civil service when the economy is good and cry when they get paid so much in pensions when times are tough. Yeah, seriously. Uh, it's like you could literally be a blue jeans millionaire being a plumber, an electrician, uh, uh, you know, any of these trades because, you know, like you can make good money providing value to to the, the white collar people who don't know anything about the trades. There are so many computer scientists that don't know which end of the hammer to use to do anything. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm so grateful for the exposure that I've gotten to construction via real estate, you know, having uh, passed my contractor license test uh, and, and, and having done work in license contract. I respect the field so much. I, I know I know a fraction of what, what, what people know who work in the fields uh, and in the trades on a daily basis. But I'll tell you, some of my wealthiest clients who were real estate investors were people who ran entrepreneurial shops built around the trades. Now, there are a lot of people who struggle in the trades because employee costs are very high, right? You can have, you could run your own, you know, electrical shop, carpentry shop, uh, whatever, you know, my father did. He ran his own uh, uh, kitchen design uh, company and, and there's nothing that'll sink your ship more than high employee costs and low margins. But uh, the margins that you can get, especially in high cost living areas, actually can be pretty dang impressive. You know, that's another thing. People say, they're like, oh, Kevin, I, I just need to move to a lower cost of living area. Boy, I'll tell you, you move to a high cost of living area, the amount of money you can make as a tradesperson, it's really impressive. Uh, so, uh, and, and, and again, that's because you have people with, with, in high cost of living areas, you have people more willing to pay you for quality plumbing and electrical work, just as an example, right? I am an energy appliance or compliance intern getting 36 an hour. Holy crap, $36 an hour as an intern? Oh, I hope my interns don't see this. I'm just, I'm just kidding, I love them. We've got, we've got fantastic plans for uh, house hack and, and uh, the future of our companies. But uh, yeah, it's really impressive. 
it's really, really impressive, the amount of money you can make out there. That's that's incredible. Geologists can easily start around 100K a year after a four-year bachelor's degree if you work in mining, travel the world, and become a geologist. Damn, that's awesome. I'm not a big fan of shorting the market right now. Uh, a lot of people have been asking me about SDAO. I don't know why. Probably some YouTuber made a video about it. Um, look, I, I, I think, first of all, holding leveraged index funds is a terrible idea. They're not designed to be held or hodled. They're designed to be traded. Uh, I think you could use SDAO as a hedge, maybe. Uh, but I would probably rather go with SQQ or something like that than, than I would SDAO. Um, but... Um, uh, you know, that's if you were waiting for a black swan. Now, if you were uh, suspecting that maybe Dow or S&P margins are elevated and you wanted to hedge against that and you were actually long tech but short, say, S&P margins, okay, maybe you could short that. Maybe. That would be the play you're doing. You're basically making a play that you think uh, tech's already had its pain, uh, although Apple's a big part of the Dow, but uh, but that uh, that's why maybe SPY. Uh, and that spy margins are too high. That's that's why you would want to short like that. Prior military, worked at a small business, 90K a year, positioned myself in five years to purchase with zero down seller financing scale to $10 million a year software service biz. Now I focus on passive income. Hell yeah. See, that's awesome. That's what I'm talking about. That That is awesome. You, you have to be willing to put in that hard work up front. I love that. Unlike these Facebook scammers like this person here, Kaizy, Kaizy Fred. Okay, Facebook comments are full of spam and scams. Hi, Kaizy Fred with your fake profile picture. You did not send me 0.6 Bitcoin and you did not get 1.8 Bitcoin back. You are an idiot, scam bot loser, and you should provide some real value to the world instead of being a scumbag. Anyway. Uh, I'm way underpaid, but I enjoy the work I do, says Kalani Nate. Uh-oh. This is not good. What happened? I'm back. I don't know what happened. Anyway, well... I guess you have to ask yourself what you enjoy. Um, like, if you could enjoy, you know, making more money with like a side hustle or another job. Because I don't know about you, but I also enjoy making money. Let's listen in. Push down to the consumer, and that's also leaning against what the Fed is trying to do. Dana, thank you so much. Just a terrific brief. Generous of your time here. Dana uh, Peterson with us with the conference board. You know, I haven't looked at the eggs because you and I are fancy people. Oh, my God. We go in and there's a not And changing, if they're going to talk about eggs on Bloomberg. Uh, EVs in the U.S. by a wide margin, the Model 3 and the Model Y. And, you know, we view the stock's valuation as highly compelling at these levels. Yes. Remember, Tesla fell by 65% last year. Uh, it was a broad-based EV sell-off. So its decline wasn't as bad as some of its peers, such as Lucid and Rivian, uh, both of which fell by 82%. Um, but we feel that so much of the uh, headwinds are priced in at these levels that it, it's it's really a compelling buy. And investors will be glad that they bought this stock at these levels looking down the road, you know, one, three, five years from now. There are some headwinds, though. You, you acknowledge, Garrett, what, what are the... Can you summarize the, the the top three headwinds? I mean, is it is it good for market share that you see prices discounted? Uh, is it 
Uh, are supply constraints, are, are those still affecting deliveries so that they're, they're not going to be what, what had been promised? And what about uh, Mr. Musk's um, other interests, if you will? Oh, my God. No, I think you just reeled off the, the major concerns there. Um, you know, it's really demand has been a, a major worry of investors. Production, uh, Tesla's quarterly production has exceeded its sales for the last three quarters. So they've built some inventory. But what they've done to respond is cut prices, which they just announced a week or two ago. And also, uh, they, the, the company's lower priced Model 3 and Model Y vehicles are now eligible for a $7,500 federal EV tax credit. So we think those two things are really helping stimulate their sales. We're seeing that anecdotally in some of the uh, sales data that we've seen uh, recently. Uh, as far as uh, Elon's you know, interest in, in Twitter, you know, that's still the number one uh, headwind for the stock. Just the uncertainty uh, regarding whether he might possibly sell additional stock, sell additional Tesla shares at some point down the road in order to continue to fund uh, Twitter's operations. I guess those headwinds are, are front and center for you, Craig? You know, the most important thing right now is competition, right? You can't control the demand environment. And we know competition's becoming more intense. Um, Tesla's had to, uh, had to put in price cuts to defend market share. Um, you know, they were overly aggressive in building out capacity. So um, price, cuts are, price cuts are something they will use going forward. Um, and, you know, once they've used it, it's coming again. Um, but the bigger, the bigger thing is there's nothing they have that others don't. Right. Battery technology uh, was mentioned, you know, the uh, 4680 cells that are starting to cut into production now. Those are based on the Maxwell technologies, uh, dry electrode technology. The key piece there is the coders. Um, some of your investors or some of your viewers would have noticed the hundred million dollar order to Matthews Corp recently. Um, that was, I assume, from Tesla. But if you do a little bit of work, you see that Matthews Corp sells to many different battery OEMs worldwide. So the key technology is open source. Um, other people in Japan and in Germany are using the same technology. You know, Tesla does not have anything that others don't have. If their batteries were so superior, oh. why are they buying from Chinese OEMs? It just doesn't make sense. So the posturing, you know, just doesn't fit with the reality of intense oh fine competition, weak environment, price cuts necessary to drive, uh, uh, growth consistent with capacity growth. You know, it doesn't speak for a company that's going into a golden era. It speaks for a company that's actually a nominal job creating the market, but there's probably better value elsewhere. And that's how we really encourage our clients to approach the situation. Did that change? Yeah, let's not mention full self-driving at all as potentially a competitive advantage. And let's not mention at all that the batteries that are being bought from companies like CATL in China are lithium iron phosphate batteries, which are generally your cheaper, lower cost batteries and are not the structural batteries or the structural battery technology that Tesla plans to implement into cars like the Cybertruck for substantially more vehicle efficiency, uh, power, towing capacity, uh, range. Nope, let's not mention any of that. Uh, they have a CFO who recently exercised stock options in late December to buy 13,500 uh, 13, shares. And then they also have a potential stock buyback announcement of the magnitude, we think, uh, in the order of 5 to $10 billion. And so you know, those are the, the positive catalysts that we see ahead for the stock. Okay. That's, 
that's what we that's what we like about it here. Endless debate on on Tesla, and it always works. Thank uh, thank you, Garrett. Garrett Nelson. Sounds like an astronaut. Uh, yeah, I I don't know. I mean, some sometimes I, f I feel like uh, uh, people have to have an opinion on Tesla. So because they have to have an opinion on Tesla, they start you know uh, spitting out nonsense. Um, what what I heard there was I mean I'm I'm all for hearing negative compelling uh, information if, if if it's compelling, but you know suggesting that Tesla doesn't have any advantage in battery technology, not mentioning uh, the fact that you know as uh, as we have a commenter here mentioning Tesla's twice the margins of other competitors, uh, the market share Tesla can swoop up with the massive free cash flow they have. I mean, again, consider it Lucid Rivian losing money for every single vehicle they're making. Uh, BYD has a, you know, what, 1.5%, 1.45% net margin. So every $100 of revenue they get, they bring a buck 40 to the bottom line. Tesla's bringing 14 bucks to the bottom line. It's insane. That's the stupidest thing I've heard. But uh, hey, you know what? Sometimes you hear stupid things from analysts about Tesla and uh, some people believe it, and you know what? You just have to thank them because uh, you thank them for the discounted opportunity to get some more of a sweet, sweet PP stock. I love pricing power stocks, and uh, this is one that in a recession uh, has the most pricing power out of all vehicles. That doesn't mean prices can't come down. Remember that. It's about relative pricing power. It's how much money can you make to strategically position yourself to cannibalize the competition and expand the overall pie. It's pretty exciting. Uh, do keep in mind that uh, right now, uh, models from GM and Tesla qualify for the EV tax credit, at least through uh, March. In March, we'll get some more uh, curiosity in terms of how many cars will actually qualify. Uh, that is, we'll get a little bit, hopefully, more guidance from uh, the Treasury Department. Uh, and that's because in, uh, in in March, probably for April and on, we'll get some more battery requirement, uh, battery sourcing uh, requirements that are implemented. Uh, so we'll see. But right now, it's expected that uh, new battery sourcing requirements to qualify for 2023 EV tax credits beyond April will require 40% of battery critical minerals and 50% of other parts to be sourced in North America or countries with a U.S. free trade agreement. Critical materials or critical minerals are basically non-fuel minerals or mineral essential to, the, uh, to economic or national security to the U.S., uh, so these are pretty important. These are going to be things probably uh, much like lithium, nickel. Uh, these are things we do not source a lot of in the United States. If using recycled uh, material, North American minerals must be 50% or more of the value added. If a newly extracted or processed critical mineral, uh, then the same requirement uh, as recycling is implemented, but with 50% of extraction steps or processing steps occurring within the U.S., or in a free trade uh, country. So you're really requiring multiple parts of that supply chain. Remember, there's extraction, then there's refinement, then there's shipping to your destination. A lot of pieces here. I, I My guess is that, look, for the first probably three months here, we're, we're good with the 7,500 EV tax credit for Teslas. They've got a big banner on the front of their page. Uh, until March 2023, certain Model 3s and Ys qualify for the $7,500 uh, $7, uh, EV tax credit. When we get those new IRS rules, 
and a, a new Treasury guidance, which we expect in March, I wouldn't be surprised that we actually see some of these requirements fall so that more vehicles qualify for the full $7,500 rather than a dropping to the $3,750 that they would otherwise fall to. The reason I believe that is because right now we are led by a Democratic administration, a Democratic administration that is trying to do their best to maximize what they have been able to pass. They were able to pass the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which included uh, the uh, EV tax credits uh, and, 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 and the CHIPS Act they were able to pass. They were able to pass a lot of spending provisions. Uh, and the Treasury Department is led by uh, Democrats under the Biden administration. So I would not be surprised to see these EV guidance rules actually end up loosening come March and more vehicles end up qualifying for those EV tax credits specifically because of the Biden administration, what we're seeing. Uh, do keep in mind that we also are seeing uh, Europe implement their own EV tax credits, like a $7,000 EV tax credit coming to uh, Germany for Teslas. This is in part because uh, Chancellor Olaf Scholz from Germany and uh, Emmanuel Macron from France have been kind of complaining about the U.S. Inflation Act. They believe that the $500 billion in spending and tax breaks are not fair to Europe and that they don't comply with international rules because they unfairly entice companies to shift their investments to the United States versus Europe. They actually think they might potentially sue the United States at the World Trade Organization complaining about what's being called the subsidy race. Basically, the government send a spending spiral to compete for electric vehicle and green businesses. The U.S. obviously wants to recapture its manufacturing base of American-made vehicles. This comes as Ford is cutting 3,200 jobs in Europe. Another slap in the face to Europe. So you're getting more tax credits in America, and now Ford saying they're cutting jobs in Europe. Yikes. Uh, so you've, you've, you've got some, um, some, uh, some po political nonsense going back and forth. Personally, I actually believe the best beneficiaries of this political infighting are actually EVs, electric vehicle manufacturers, because ultimately what will end up happening is not less spending for EVs because that's not uh, a Democratic priority. And, and Democrats are, are uh, certainly with, with green priorities are obviously uh, in, in the driver's seat right now in America. Uh, and, uh, and green priorities are more commonly accepted in Europe. So I really believe the EVs are going to be the beneficiaries here. Uh, and do keep in mind, uh, you know, earlier in, in, in this video here, we, we talked about uh, how much money folks are able to make as unioned employees. And that's great when you're an employee. But one of the reasons Tesla actually potentially has superior margins is because not only are they highly automated, uh, they actually bought a German robotics manufacturer and have been using uh, that company substantially for building their own proprietary robotics uh, which is another moat, by the way. It's another moat around the competitor being able to uh, have the margins that Tesla does. Tesla literally bought the machine manufacturer that makes the robots that make the cars. But you also have a substantially not, well, I mean, you have a completely non-unionized workforce in manufacturing. You don't have the massive pension liabilities and overhangs that you do at legacy autos like Ford and GM. Operating margins uh, are, uh, at Tesla are actually pretty similar to the margins that you see at some of the luxury automakers like Ferrari and Lamborghini. 
Uh, and so obviously we also expect EV sales to rise over three and a half X globally over the next five years, expecting to get to 17 million units produced by 2026. Obviously Tesla will get all of those. Uh, Model 3 and Ys are pretty reliable on the EV market. Uh, obviously, I'm kidding. They're not going to get all of that. Uh, we do know that Elon Musk's goal is to eventually manufacture as many as 20 million vehicles. And with the new announcement of the Giga expansion uh, yesterday, there is an expectation that Tesla's going to get a big old market share, especially for uh, the electric semis market, which really nobody else is playing in right now, which is uh, pretty remarkable. Uh, Tesla earnings obviously coming up today. I'm relatively bullish uh, uh, about that mostly because I think a lot of those price cuts we know, especially in the United States, really didn't start happening via tax credits uh, in the last week of December for 7500 bucks, uh, in the month of December for 3750 uh, and then of course the actual price cuts not until January. So I think most of that margin impact won't be seen uh, for Tesla and, and so I think margin could actually uh, nicely surprise especially as we're coming out of two quarters of, of potential uh, Shanghai pain. Uh, although we'll see what kind of blame uh, Tesla puts on put, uh, you know, pressures from China, which hopefully reverse going into 2023. So we'll see when it comes to those earnings. Though um, the, the, the Tesla semi announcement uh, the, uh, should I say the Giga Nevada expansion announcement, pretty exciting. $3.6 billion investment, 3,000 additional staff, 4 million square feet of new manufacturing, a 100 gigawatt 4680 cell. That's enough batteries for 2 million light duty vehicles annually. Thanks, Sawyer, for that. Uh, new high volume semi factory. I mean, that's that's pretty exciting. They've got a nice render of the factory as well that's been circulating on Twitter. Uh, I'll show this. This is just a render, uh, so it's not actually anything too spectacular. But uh, essentially, you see another gigafactory here with uh, Tesla designed on uh, the roof thanks to their solar panels. And then you can actually see a whole line of Tesla semis, which is interesting because I like how the rendering shows that the Tesla semis would have uh, like basically cargo already attached to them. I don't think that semi trucks coming off the line are going to have cargo containers already attached to them, but they definitely look better for the rendering than if they didn't, because this is what they look like without cargo attached. <laughs> uh, and then I kind of like that one semi-truck right there, kind of like magically coming through the wall. Uh, but then again, it's it's just a rendering. You're not supposed to look that close at renderings. <laughs> anyway, uh, look, uh, it's sort of a Tesla earnings preview. Uh, let's, you know, let's look at their last, and, and I'll, I'll give you kind of a little bit of uh, guidance, in my opinion, in terms of what to look for and what Wall Street is looking for. So let's look at their last earnings uh, report. So we'll go to their Q3 presentation, and we can also compare that to what the earnings estimates are from the Wall Street consensus. But I promise you, the first thing that we're going to look at uh, is going to be right here. It is going to be automotive gross margin. So I want you to remember this, in, and this is what I actually think is actually, in my opinion, bullish here about Tesla. And look, I always, you know, like if, if you go YOLO call, call options and then you lose money trying to bet on earnings, that's your problem. And if you make lots of money, do send me a thank you, then I'll take responsibility for it. But uh, look, I generally don't play earnings because you have no idea how markets are going to react to the 
stupidest things ever. Uh, and so I don't like playing earnings. I think you're kind of just flipping a coin when you're playing earnings. I prefer to play uh, longer term tactical trades. But what I want you to pay attention to here is in Q2, we had what I call Shanghai, and that was really your shutdown of uh, the uh, uh, Shanghai Gigafactory, which is your highest margin Gigafactory. Do keep in mind these margins do include the electric vehicle tax credits right here, uh, so they're a little bit elevated. But look, at in, in 2021, we were sitting at 30 to 33% gross vehicle margins. Shanghai, we were at 27.9%. We were at 27.9%. We missed the estimate of 28.4% on margins uh, for, uh, for, for 2020 or for Q3 here. Uh, and so the, the hope is that maybe we could actually beat here, but uh, with, with price cuts, uh, you know, even a meet here would be phenomenal. Uh, so let me see if I can get any kind of consensus uh, forward here for the quarter, which I think will be quite interesting. Uh, let's see here, consensus on quarters. So, but that margin's gonna be important, especially since we are expecting, oh yeah, here we go. Okay, uh, no, Q3, okay, there it is. Uh, no, that's Q, why is there no Q4 estimate? That's quite odd. Uh, I actually have a Q1 estimate of 25.25 provided right now, but I'm not seeing an estimate for Q4. However, if the margin is 25.5 for Q1, uh, that's actually, that, I mean, the margin should be in excess of 26% of expected uh, for Q4. So I'll work on getting a little bit uh, more of an estimate there for automotive gross margin. But uh, as far as the actual earnings, you'll want to write these down so you can have a little bit of a prep for when that earnings uh, report comes out. The uh, guidance is a buck twelve for adjusted EPS, gap EPS a buck four revenue, which should be relatively accurate because it's a headline number and we already have guidance on how many vehicles were delivered. But then it comes down to energy in that. I do think we're going to start seeing a slowdown in battery deliveries and energy deployments probably by Q1, but we'll see if we'll get any negative insight there. Maybe we'll get some mega pack deployments to offset that. Revenue of 20.6, 20.7 billion expected on top line rev. Net income expected to be 3.98. So if we can get a nice four on that net income, I think that would be pretty exciting. Uh, fascinating, fascinating here to see. And uh, excited to see what we end up getting with margin. But I think margin's probably going to be your biggest concern. And again, I don't actually think it's going to be as bad as folks expect because, again, most of the price cuts uh, were were... Uh, you know, in, in basically uh, Q1 over here. So uh, we'll, we'll see. But that margin is going to be a big deal. Uh, I uh, believe the consensus is about 26.4% uh, right now, excluding credits is what I'm able to research here. So 26.4% excluding credits. Let's go ahead and jump for a moment to one of the last pages here, which is where we can get automotive gross margin excluding credits. Uh, let's see here, which page was it on? <laughs> Should be on one of these back pages here. Automotive margin, uh, we'll find it. This is a statement of cash flows. This is our balance sheet. One thing we're gonna look for on the statement of cash flows, obviously, is uh, the level of free cash flow that we had. Look at this, folks. Cash provided by operating activities, $5.1 billion. You had $3.3 billion of free cash flow at Tesla. Really, really incredible. Extremely low debt. 
You know, I mean, I don't even really consider leases debt, but uh, other long-term liabilities sitting at $4.3 billion. Uh, that's right here for, oops. Okay, well, decided to page away. But anyway, $4.3 billion, relatively low over here uh, for Tesla. So uh, we'll see if there's any kind of pay down for that sort of other long-term debt. What do we have? Let's see here. We've got, uh, we'll go ahead and look at uh, energy generation. We'll see, that was that was a nice boost in the last quarter coming in at about 1.1 bill. We'll see what kind of movement we have there. Again, I am expecting longer-term weakness in that segment. Uh, and then automotive gross margin we know was 27.9, but that includes credits. I think I'm just going to go ahead and calculate it myself really quick what it was without credits last time because uh, that's easy to do. So let's just go ahead and take automotive gross profit of 5212. Let's go ahead and subtract 286 from that. That brings us down to 4926. We're going to divide that into revenues. Uh, so divided by 18,692, that brings us to about 26.35% without vehicle credits. So again, 26.35% without vehicle credits was the last one. And the Wall Street consensus right now is looking for about 26.5% without vehicle credits going into the fourth quarter. Personally, I'm optimistic on that. Again, I wouldn't YOLO bet on it, but I'm optimistic. That's clearly something we're going to be looking at. Another thing, of course, I love looking at is how much are they taking to the bottom line, right? And uh, in this last quarter, we took three nine or three two nine two billion to the bottom line, three point two basically, three point three to the bottom line. If we divide that by revenue of eighteen uh, six nine two, that actually gives you a quarterly net income margin of seventeen point six percent. The 14% I usually refer to as an annualized or as an annual figure, 17.6%, pretty impressive. So it's going to be a big day, going to be a big day for Tesla. So fingers crossed, uh, we get some great news here for Tesla. But uh, I'm excited, and I think there there is reason to be excited. Uh, anyway, another reason to get excited is that you got five days left to take advantage of that coupon code link down below for the programs on building your wealth you get lifetime access to the course member live streams we do after the pre-market open live stream uh every day and uh possibly we'll start on weekends for elite hustlers uh within the next uh week or so here tbd and exactly when but uh and then of course lifetime access to any content added in the future all right let's see here da -da 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 -da. Mm -hmm. uh, let's see here. Don't kid yourself, they will miss by a little. <laughs> After earnings, I expect Tesla to test $100. Wow. Future outlook will be weak. Oh, we, we got a bear. That's a, that'd be a big drop from 140 That'd be a big old drop. Dig in the new cut. Oh, thank you for saying that. All right, let's take a look and see what Jimbo has to say. You have to say for yourself. They're doing this really rapidly when they're not playing Call of Duty. Oops, Call of Duty. That deal's never going to go through. Are well, you kidding? We'll see. Oh, we'll see? Yeah. This is a Wilsonian day. We'll see. Uh, Mike we'll, Wilson being the... We're going to talk uh, more uh, about the knock-on effects. Uh, Bernstein today cutting their target on Amazon. We'll uh, get to that a little uh, bit later. Uh, but Boeing's the other big story this morning on that quarterly miss and some of the cash flow guidance. Let's get to our Phil LeBeau with a very special guest. Hey, Phil. 
Hey, Carl. Dave Calhoun, CEO of Boeing, on a day where you miss on the top and the bottom line. I think some people are waking up, they're looking at this, and they're saying, whoa, you guys report a loss of a buck seventy-five. Street's expecting 26 cents. What happened? Well, uh, we gave our first guidance fill back in November, first in the last three years, in light of all the existential issues we'd been facing. If we look at the way we finished the quarter, we focused on deliveries and we focused on cash flow as the primary metrics. And on both of those fronts, we exceeded even our own expectations. So we actually feel very good about the fourth quarter and the execution as we went through it. On the revenue side, we were within a hair of whatever the ultimate consensus was. But we exceeded on deliveries and on cash flow. We got over $3 billion in the, in the quarter itself which is pretty remarkable and is a big part of our overall recovery. But the big cost component here, the yeah. cost bugaboo, if you will, it's abnormal production charges and reworking these planes that are in inventory, right? Yes. And for us, our margins uh, from an accounting standpoint will be bouncy throughout this year, largely built around the return to service of the inventoried airplanes, both the MAX and the 787. On the other hand, on the nose of the airplane, it, it is what determines our cash flow. And so we still feel very good about our guidance, and we're off to a pretty good start. Jim, I know you have a question for Dave. First thing, Dave, I want to uh, actually congratulate you because I was looking for free cash flow that wouldn't be this good. And I know that Phil definitely raises issues. I'm going to pull up Boeing. We covered Boeing a little earlier. The <clears throat> question I just got here from uh, a channel member here, Shane, thank you, by the way, for being a member. Thank you to all of those of you being members here. Appreciate uh, the, the, uh, the questions. Shane asked Kevin, do you still feel Polestar is not a sexy EV play? I'm invested in Tesla and Polestar, and I don't like Lucid or Rivian. Well, I'd love to answer that question for you. Thanks for answering or asking it. Uh, correct. I don't believe that Polestar is a good investment. I don't believe that Polestar has any unique advantage other than solely price. You're not getting any kind of self-driving technology. You're not getting a spectacular supercharger network. So I don't believe you're actually creating any kind of real excitement uh, in terms of <clears throat> benefits for using the vehicle other than the price of the vehicle. Now, uh, I also don't believe you are appealing to the best demographic to appeal to for the transition to electric vehicles, which is dudes between 20 to 45, which is exactly what Tesla does. Because dudes between 20 to 45-ish, 25 to 45-ish, get so excited about technology that they tell everyone in the world that they know about the technology that they have, and they show it off. It's like a long pee-pee for them. They love it, okay? It's like a company with a lot of pricing power. They love companies with a lot of pricing power, which also happens to be what Polestar is not. In fact, let's go look at the last earnings release from Polestar, which I happen to pull up. Let's see what we have. For the nine months ending September 30th, 2022, we have revenue sitting at 1.47 billion. I believe these are, I don't have the exact currency right here, but I'll find out exactly what this is. But we have 1.47 billion, whatever it is. Here it is. Hold on. All amounts presented in the report are shown in thousands of US dollars. Okay, good. So we have 1.476 US dollars. We have costs of sales, unfortunately, of 1.49. Now, here's an example of a company that literally, in my opinion, has zero pricing power. Not just already for the things that I've mentioned, but consider this. 14.19 on a cost of sales divided into 14.76 provides you a beautiful gross profit margin, my friend, of 3.9%. That is terrible and explains why not only do they have uh, barely any profit on the top, 
but they have massive losses once you factor in their operating expenses of about $1.1 billion, leading to an operating loss that is nearly, uh, what, 80% higher than it was last year around this time at just over $1 billion. Now, of course, they have uh, some, it uh, looks like finance income here, so we've got some other operations bringing in some income, but on the actual vehicle sales, it's a problem. I have no idea how they pulled off an $890 million finance income and expense net here. That is interesting. That's where I would give them a little bit of hopium if something like that is sustainable, but it's still a company that's burning money. Let's go ahead and see if we can find out uh, a, what the heck that finance uh, uh, item is right there, because that seems a little remarkable to me. Uh, but then let's also look at their statement of cash flow and figure out what's going on here. Yeah, it looks like finance income was 711 mil. So we've got some large finance income here. We'll see what we can find here on finance income. And then what we'll do is we also want to see a statement of cash flows. Finance income, here we go. Finance income, ba 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 ba. Uh, finance income decrease. These are decreases in finance income. Hold on a second here. This doesn't make quite much sense. So, uh, finance income and expense net $890 million. This is how they padded their net losses substantially. But where that is, I don't understand. Because this doesn't show me under finance income and finance expense. It must be an other item. No. I don't know where that large number is coming from. Because they're actually showing that their finance income decreased 93%. Or two. No, finance income decreased by eight, uh, $8.8 8 million from $9.6 million from the three months ended last year finance income decreased this is another period finance expenses increased so finance income in uh, decreased finance expenses increased that's what you would expect what is this fair value change uh the gain in fair value for earnout liability in september of 2022 was 546 million dollars and 965 respectively these are primarily attributable to a decrease in polestar share price Okay, so they took, basically they took some kind of extra income on the fact that their, their, uh, the payout they have to give to probably warrant liabilities is lower than expected because their share price fell. So in a perverted way, they're showing you more income here because their stock price fell. Brilliant. That's no pricing power at all. Uh, so that, and that would go, that's why we've got this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There it is. See, see when we break out the earnout rights right here. This is the only reason they were able to prop up their net income was because of a change of fair value on uh, on shares and they had to spend less money. So their finance income plummeted. No, that's true. Their finance income plummeted 93% and their finance expenses exploded like 4x because of interest rates. That makes sense. So in other words, the only reason their net income actually looked like it wasn't as bad as it should have been was because their stock price fell. How ironic is that? Oh, our net income wasn't that bad because our stock price plummeted and now our warrant liability is less. That's ridiculous. Look at their quarterly uh, uh, income over here. Uh, again, revenue, cost of sales, there's virtually no gross profit over here. And this is on the three month chart over here. 
We've got SGNA, which is actually fortunately shrinking, which is good. You've got a shrinking SGNA. That's smart. They're trying to reduce their operating losses, but they're still losing money because they're barely making money on their vehicles. And now let's go ahead and look at their actual cash flow situation. Their cash flow from operating activities in the nine months ending uh, September 2022 was actually negative $1 billion. That's terrible. And their ca their plant property and equipment expenses was actually only $7.4 million. So they're not actually spending a lot of money investing in PPE. I'm not sure if they use contract manufacturing. That could be why. If they're using contract manufacturing, they might not have to invest in their plant property and equipment. But if they don't use pro uh, a contract manufacturing uh, and they do it themselves, then, then why are they not investing in more factories, right? Polestar production at Volvo's, uh, I think they're, they might be contracting production to, to uh, Volvo, in which case it would make sense that your PPE is not going up here, but that also limits your potential for margin growth because you can't increase margins because you're constantly paying somebody else. So you're, you've got a cash flow here of negative a billion bucks. What do you have in terms of a balance sheet over here? Well, on current assets, you're looking at, I'll give them um, about a billion in cash here. We've got no marketable securities. We've got some receivables. We've got inventory. I don't really care about inventory uh, because I, I consider that as part of cash flow anyway. So I'm going to look at this as a billion bucks here of current assets. We've got non-current assets here of goodwill that's worthless. I can't sell goodwill. Plant property and equipment, nominal, 255 mil. That doesn't matter. That doesn't help me pay my debts. It's a depreciable asset. $1 billion is what they have. And we've got current liabilities of, oh my Lord, current liabilities of $3 billion. So we've got $3 billion of current liabilities. You've got $1 billion of free cash. And you've got total liabilities of about $3.5 billion. So their long-term liabilities are really just their, earn their warrants. They don't have a lot of long-term liabilities, which is good. But the fact that they have $1.1 billion of liabilities to credit institutions due within the next year and they only have a billion dollars of cash and they're losing a billion dollars of cash every nine months and they've got trade payables of 100 or 817 million dollars and they have a three percent gross profit margin this is this is not a company i would touch with a 10-foot pole so if you want to ask me why polestar is not sexy i'll go through all of it again but that is my explanation as to why i don't think polestar is sexy I'm a fundamentalist at heart. I don't care about what the market does in the short term, but I actually mean it when I say that. Uh, that's why I launched an ETF where I place my bets where the fundamentals are juicy. The fundamentals are not juicy at Polestar. I'm sorry. All right. Now we're going to go talk about something else. But there's nothing else to talk about because Bloomberg and CNBC are on commercials. So instead, I will read the sticks. The sticks with 15 minutes to go before. Oh, I forgot to schedule the course member live. Let me do that real quick. But everybody already knows who's in the course to uh, to come after this. But I'm gonna do that really quick. Course member live is 125. We'll do that in about 10 minutes. All right, good. So. Uh, looking at some of the sticks and some of the pain we have in the stick here, uh, sticks we have, yeah, we do have pain. Redfin down 7.6%. Now, that does not actually surprise me that Redfin is down so much. Uh, again, I think uh, the real estate market is the next to get whacked, and it, it'll get whacked uh, much later. I think real estate gets whacked as stocks actually recover, which I think I know is re seems remarkable. But unless, if we don't get a black swan, I think that'll end up being correct. 
125 course member live. Alright then. So boop. Alright, good. So um Kevin laid out that long pee-pee. <laughs> um rip to the guy investing in Polestar. I'm sorry, look. Look, and and I I don't want to be like aggressive about it. I get really passionate about fundamental analysis. Uh, I um and and look, it could do fine if if the market goes up. It's gonna do fine. But I I strongly believe that when the market goes up, what's gonna happen? They're going to have to sell shares, and that'll push these suckers right back down. The companies that are losing money have big risk. Big risk. Small PP. Small PP. Small PP equals big risk, in my opinion. Uh, especially if you don't have free cash flow. Like, okay, look, you want you want the simplest explanation for what performs the best? A lot of cash and a long PP. Okay, today we get mortgage applications. Boring stat comes out in forty minutes. Seven uh, percent expected move on mortgage apps. Boring. We don't really get a lot of eco data until tomorrow. When we get some GDP numbers, that'll be fun. Uh, but that'll be tomorrow. And okay, let's see what else we got in some of these sticks. Stick stocks. Uh, uh, uh. Redfin, Fisker down 7%, SunPower 5%, Enphase 5%. This, like, honestly, even though I have a small position in Enphase, I could not be more happy about Enphase's collapse. Because Enphase is my favorite company to start buying probably around 160. I want to see that sucker plummet. I've been cheering for a plummet since the 300s. Because I'm like, this is stupid. There's no reason going into a real estate slowdown. Uh, solar stock should be doing this well. So I'm very, very happy about this. And I cannot wait uh, until the sucker gets even lower so I can increase my allocation in these bad puppies. Um, as far as things that are going up, you have GoEV going up 10% in pre-market. Yeah, that's not stupid at all. Um, <laughs> let, let's see how much volume it took to move this sucker. It took about 30, uh, call it about 100,000 shares of volume to move this. Oh, it took a little more because there was zero volume in the pre-market. Some jerk came in here and started buying about probably 100,000 shares of this, which is about $120,000. It's actually not that much money uh, relative to, to a stock, right? And, and so it's immediately getting sold off, but it's created enough sort of a push here to move it in pre-market. Why would you spend $100,000 like $100, buying something like this in pre-market? Like, why would you do this in pre-market? It makes no logical sense to buy stuff in pre-market unless you're buying like one or two shares or something. Like, pre-market's a joke. Uh, Snowflake down 4.6%. Uh, Sunrun 4.5%. Unit. I mean, these Microsoft uh, numbers really smack the crap out of some of these uh, software companies. I wonder how Bill.com's doing. Bill.com is at 100 bucks, down 3%. Off of that 348 insanity. I wonder what PE Bill.com is selling for. So it's selling for 105 bucks in pre market. Let's see what we have here. Bill, uh, yes, Enphase does commercial. Does Bill, 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 Bill. 
Bill.com is expected to have earnings per share of... Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh my god. This is stupid. Okay. Bill.com is expected to have earnings of, wait for it, 54 cents uh, in 2023 ending June. That puts you at a six-month forward P.E. ratio of... 194. EPS expected to grow at about 50% though. That puts you at about a four peg. You're paying a four peg for software as a service on bill.com right now. Well, no duh that sucker's down 3%. That's insane. Why would you do that? That's nutty. Uh, Microsoft, Amazon down about three and a half to three, uh, yeah, about three and a half, three and a third to about three and a half percent. Tesla down about 1.78. Uh, NVIDIA and AMD down about two, two and a half, uh, two and a quarter percent. TSM down about 1.7. Embraer pre-market move has relaxed a little bit, roughly flat, probably thanks to Boeing uh, earnings uh, coming in at a little bit of a miss. Boeing sitting at right now negative 2.25%. Joe Manchin to introduce bill to delay EV tax credits per Wall Street Journal. Joe Manchin to get ignored per Meet Kevin. <laughs> uh, can I share my opinion on Fiverr? You know, I don't... I mean, a contract work, recessionary environment, initially not very optimistic. If I look at... what What is the ticker on that? Fiverr. There it is. F-V-R-R. Is that international? Is that an ADR? I don't, I don't really know anything about Fiverr. Fiverr, 36.68 pre-market, 68 cents of EPS. Earnings per share expected to shrink. Well, that looks terrible. Uh, expected to shrink in 2023. We're expecting shrinkage. And then maybe we'll double from 50 cents of EPS to a buck, a buck 52 bucks down the road. Uh, so right now you're looking at 36 divided by 50 cents. You're looking at 72 times earnings. But if you get that double in earnings in the future, it's actually, it's nowhere near as bad as Bill.com. That's fascinating. Nowhere near as bad as Bill.com. If we're looking at the right one here. Fiverr. Five, is it Fiverr International? Yeah, 36.68. Okay. It's actually at 35.60 in free market. Hmm. Your boy, Harry, thanks for joining and uh, being a member here of the channel. Tesla earnings signaling a slowdown ahead potentially with the car company cutting prices over the last few weeks. The results continue to roll in with Tesla after the close. That conversation still ahead. Tesla. With Colin Rush of Oppenheimer. Tesla. We're going to talk Tesla. We already talked Tesla. Oh, this is boring. Come on. Come on, CNBC. Give us something. Oh, CNBC's dead. Uh-oh. I broke it. I broke CNBC. Well, that's not good because how am I going to cover my earnings? I'll figure it out. I'll turn it on. There must just be a problem. I'll solve it. Anywho. All right. What do you think the odds of this bill will critically affect? And recently, oh. he introduced a bill that would. Uh, eighty-five. There we go. I fixed it. All right. Um, you know, actually, I okay. Let's do a war comment. I actually think the sending of these battle tanks uh, is is uh, unlikely to trigger a World War III. I think that's like a, you know, 1% scenario, potentially even less than that. 
But I think the sending of these Abrams, Leopard tanks, and potentially F-16s from the Netherlands is a really big shift. It's basically saying that NATO allies think Ukraine is about to win. And they're like, let's just give them this and see if it pushes them over the edge because it'll be good for everyone if this war ends. Actually pretty excited about that. Uh, uh, so I, I'm not as nervous as, as some about that. I know some are and I respect that. But yeah. Can, can you get a chance to ask J-Pow a question during the FOMC meeting? See, I would love that. I think that would be really cool. I think we need that. I think we need... Uh, uh, you know, YouTubers and and such, um, basically being able to uh, contact and and, and uh, interact with the Federal Reserve. The fact that it's just the mainstream media, no, I think is a little bit depressing. I uh, I hope that changes one day in the future. But uh, you know, you you can contact the Fed. Uh, they, they probably won't answer, but you can contact them. They uh, they have a contact us thing that probably nobody reads, so I don't think it's really worth it. But um, yeah, anyway, <laughs> let me see if they have a media email, media, 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 media inquiries. Ooh, here we go. Ah, uh, they just have a phone number. Here, I'll give it to y'all. Hold on. There you go. If if, if somebody is so inclined to contact the media line or leave them a voicemail, I encourage you to ask them to contact Kevin at meetkevin.com uh, for a YouTube, for, for the the biggest Fed fanboy ever, and, um, and, and ask them to please have Jerome Powell contact his son uh, by email at kevin at meetkevin.com, uh, and, and you could send that request by calling 202 452 2955. That's the media inquiries number for the Board of Governors at the Federal Reserve. <laughs> Don't you have J-POW on speed dial, Kevin? Maybe I already do. <laughs> that does it for us. We're going to head on over to the course member live stream, catch the opening bell, do some Q&A and fundy analysis together. Thank you so much for being here. Take advantage of that 30% off coupon code. It's the last coupon code we're doing. Three-month price guarantee at minimum. Prices are going up. Join those courses. You get lifetime access to those programs on building your wealth. Join any of them and you get access. We'll see you soon. Thanks so much for being here. We'll see you soon. Goodbye. Good luck.